Good morning. You guys doing well? Looks like we got some troublemakers right up here in this section. Here. Where are the ushers? There's a lot of trouble right up here, right here, right in this section. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Um, first day of fall yesterday. 106 degrees. Only in Phoenix. So uh, there you have it. It's supposed to cool off this next week, though. We'll get back down to some cool weather. We're, yeah, cool weather, 90s. That's us desert rats. Um, I, I made... Uh, a, a bad prediction last weekend that and I ate I ate crow I ate crow for for lunch it was mighty tasty and uh, so I'm gonna make another prediction here today about the Cardinals and I think the Eagles are gonna beat them and uh, I'm hoping that they'll actually uh, win but maybe if I keep making these predictions uh, they'll do well that's cool we'll see that ought to be a good game, but we've got a great study here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. This is our Gospel in Life series. We're trying to work the Gospel in every aspect of our life. We know that grace changes everything about us, and so we're kind of looking into every part of our lives to see how that works itself out. And uh, we're looking at, this is part three of this series, Heart, Three Ways to Live, looking at one of my favorite uh, parable stories in the New Testament. But let me set it up, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at our text. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion. Salvation by works. Another word for it would be moralism. Wrong. Extremely wrong. In, in fact, Christianity is stunningly beautiful. It is salvation by grace. I'm convinced that most who reject Christianity think they're rejecting moralism. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And they're thinking that they're actually rejecting moralism, but little do they know that it is the most amazing gift they'll ever receive. Moralism has to do with I have to do these things to achieve right standing with God, but the, the gift that God gives us through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is absolutely amazing. People tend to think that there are two ways to relate to God. Because of this, they think, well, there's only two ways to relate to God. The one way is that, uh, is to listen to God, follow God, do what God wants me to do, and the other way would be to ignore God and do my own thing. And most would say, okay, I either follow God or I don't follow God. And they would say there's two ways to live. There's actually three ways to live. There is religion, irreligion, and the gospel. And everyone here is living one of those three ways. All of us tend to default to either religion or irreligion. And it's real important that you don't miss this this morning and understand what the gospel is. That's what we're looking at this morning. What is the gospel and how is it different from religion and irreligion? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment once again and uh, pray. 
Father God, how great is the love that you have lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Wow, that is an amazing verse. And that is what we are. The implications are stunningly beautiful. Give us greater revelation of that truth so that your perfect love will chase away all of our fears. God, I know that there are those that are here this morning that they have fears, maybe fear over their health or their finances or, or, or relationships, whatever it might be, God. May we understand your amazing love and the grace that we have in you and it would chase away those fears. And we pray this morning that through the study of your, your holy word, open blind hearts, heal wounded hearts, and may all of our hearts be ravished with the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us that ruins us for anything else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. This is what I'm going to do. Typically, I'll read through the text and... Uh, and I won't comment. I'm going to comment on this. It's a story. It's a parable. I'm going to walk through this and kind of give you a little explanation as we, as we work through this. We begin our reading, first two verses of uh, Luke 15, and then we'll jump to verse 11. So it begins like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Who's him? It's Jesus. So they're just hanging on every word. Jesus attracted tax collectors and sinners. And notice the next verse, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we've got two distinct groups that would represent both the irreligious and the religious right here. And then he goes into rapid fire style gives us three stories. We're going to jump to the third story, and he's going to make this distinction between religion and irreligion, and then we're going to have a better understanding of the gospel. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Stop there just for a minute. Take a look up here. This is what you need to understand about a story like this. First of all, uh, when the sons inherited property, when the children inherited the property, usually the older son always got twice as much. And so the older son would receive two-thirds, and the younger son would would receive one-third. So he's asking for his one-third. When a son asked for his inheritance before the father was... uh, had passed away, in essence, it was the son saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. In fact, Dad, I want your stuff more than I want you. That's in essence what he's saying here. It's just kind of important as as we read through this. Now, it would have been typical for Middle, Middle Eastern patriarchs at this moment when the son is really being insubordinate and really having the attitude that he has to drive him out verbally and physically out of the house, away from the home. Another point, too, is that when it uses the word when he divided his property, the, word, the root word there is, is bio. We get it, the word biology. 
And literally, he's ripping his life apart by dividing up his property because what this meant, property was, was really what their lives were about. And it gave them security, a sense of security, but also status in the community. So he's literally tearing his life apart to give this younger son one-third of the inheritance, even prematurely, prematurely before, he, um, before he dies. And so notice the, the attitude of the, the father. He says, and he divided his property between them. Let's continue reading. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he, be, and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. This is unbelievably despicable for a little Jewish young man. Uh, pigs were not kosher. They were not clean animals. And so this is the lowest of the lows for this young man. He's hit the bottom. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So there's this, he's gotten to this point of desperation. Notice this, verse 17. This is good. This is how salvation takes place in, our, in all of our lives, really. But when he came to himself, some translations say when he came to his senses. When he came to himself, he's thinking, wait a minute, something's wrong with this. And, and we all have to come to that place in our own life when we've kind of taken our own path he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. By the way, you, need, you know this, that there's nothing in this world that will satisfy those deepest longings and needs except for the Father, except for God. That's what he's coming to the conclusion of. This is a, a metaphor to help us to see that even in our own lives. And now he begins to recite. He's kind of he's rehearsing what he's going to say to his father when he comes back home. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. By the way, this is true repentance. Because notice that he says, I have sinned against heaven. I first and foremost sinned against God. All sin is first and foremost against God. That's what we find in uh, David, the psalmist who committed adultery when he was confronted by the prophet and finally realized, wait a minute, I, I committed adultery, I lied, I murdered, I did all of that. That's secondary to the fact that I, I trampled on God's love and wisdom first and foremost. See, that's, that's the essence. So it's to recognize, first of all, I do all these things because I trampled on God. I pushed God away. So that's why he's saying, I sinned against heaven. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, against you, you alone have I sinned. Most people say, wait a minute. No, he sinned. He committed adultery. You know, he killed, he murdered, he betrayed his country. He did all these things. But they, yeah, that's secondary to having trampled on the love and wisdom of God. And so this guy's certainly, this younger brother's got the order down as we walk through this story. And he says, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what he's saying here is that I want to come back and earn my right to be back in the family. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Every other religion is about earning. It's about achieving. Everyone, 
If you want to do a, you can study all the major religions. This is why I'm a Christian today, is because everything else is about earning. We can never earn right standing with God, but, but Christianity is about Him achieving that and giving that to us, and we receive it. Verse 20, and He arose and came to His Father. Oh, man, I love this part right here. This is a, this is a beautiful part of the story. When He came to His Father, but while He was still a long way off, Well, he was still a long way off. How did, what was going on there? How would the father see that? Because the father was looking for him. The father had a longing for the son. He was out looking. Oh, my goodness, I hope he comes home today. Oh, I want him to come home. I want him so badly to come home. I mean, the, the father's looking for him. And when he saw him from a long way off, his father felt compassion and ran. You know how crazy this is? For a Middle Eastern patriarch to run, that is so unsophisticated. That's so undignified. They'd have to pull up their robe and bare their legs. And a a patriarch, a, a, a Middle Eastern man would not do that. A woman, yes. A child or a youth, they would all do that. They would run, but he, they would never run. Mm, too sophisticated for that. And yet his, he has so much compassion. He sees him at a distance, and he runs out to him. And literally, the Greek says that he, he smothers him with kisses. You could actually write that in the, in the column of your Bible, that that's what he's doing here. And he embraced him and kissed him and smothered him with kisses. I mean, what, what a beautiful picture of our God, of our Father God, our Daddy. That's amazing. Oh, that's, that is awesome. That's, and that's why Jesus is, is sharing this story. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. So he's going to now recite what he's kind of rehearsed. I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him right in mid-sentence. He didn't even get to finish it. And here's what the father goes. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. The best robe was his robe. And put on him, uh, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, which speaks of authority, and shoes on his feet, which speak, speaks of affluence. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. I mean, he's throwing a party. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Okay, that's kind of act one. Now we're going to enter into act two of this whole this story. And now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked that these things, what, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father. Notice, he's, notice how disrespectful he is. He didn't, didn't, didn't re- respond to him with respect by referring to him as father. He goes, look! These many years I have served you. 
And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You're probably wondering, I mean, they keep mentioning this fattened calf. What's up with that? What's up with the fattened calf? It was a delicacy. It was the only time that they ever uh, butchered a, a calf was when they were going to have a big party, invite the neighbors, and everybody would come over. And, it's like, and so he's pretty upset about this. Uh, by the way, let me ask you this uh, question. Who regretted the return of the younger son the most? The fattened calf. Uh, okay, that was just to see if you were with me. But, uh, but I mean, he's, he's pretty upset over this whole thing. But I want you to notice, look at verse 31. These, these are rich words. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. I mean, that hit me, uh, me like a ton of bricks yesterday as I was reflecting on that. How do you, how, how do we typically respond to uh, rejected love when we've poured our heart out to somebody, we've given our life to someone? Typically, we do a, what is known as a kind of a preemptive kind of strike. I mean, this, this father is enduring rejected love, and yet he responds. But typically, what do we do? We're, we're mean back. We respond in like manner. But I don't want to be hurt anymore, so I'm just going to, I'm just, I, I don't, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject you before you get a chance to reject me. Well, you don't get that from the Father. And, uh, son, you've always been with me. You've always been with me. That's, we'll, we'll talk about that. We have God. You have me. We have God. We, and we often will opt for what he gives to us rather than him. And then, in fact, he says, all that is mine is yours. This, this whole thing farm is yours. We'll get back to that too. And it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then the story ends. It's a cliffhanger. You know, the question is, will the family reunite and love and celebrate this coming home of the young brother? But he just, he ends it right there. Why, why would he end it like that? Because this is in reference, this elder brother represents who? The Pharisees, yeah. And remember the beginning of the story? The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, but the Pharisees and scribes grumbling, this man receives sinners and eats with him. So he's, he's, he's showing them, he's giving them a picture. That's, that's them in the story. It's almost like he's giving an invitation. Will you turn to me? Will you come into the party? Will you celebrate so it's really interesting how that ends. It just kind of leaves it open. And what's interesting, I think, too, is that, that typically the younger brothers are saved and many times the older brothers are lost. And uh, our churches are packed full of elder brothers in America today that are lost and more lost than the younger brother. And so this is God's holy word to us this morning I think that he helps us to define uh, three, three questions. Who is God? He helps us to define God. We were getting glimpses of that, certainly. Uh, what is sin? And then uh, what is salvation? And man, if you can understand this and what he's telling us in this story, you're going to really understand the distinction 
between religion, irreligion, and the gospel. It's so important for you to understand that. And even when we do understand it, we always tend to default back to religion or irreligion. We tend to always go back to that, just kind of in instinct within us. But first of all, who is God? Here's your first fill in the blank. He is a father unlike you've ever known. More than anyone else, Jesus referred to God as Father. He not only modeled that, but when He taught His disciples how to pray, He prayed, He, he said, pray like this, what? Our Father, literally, Daddy, Abba. First words uttered from a little Hebrew child. Unlike American children, their first words are mine and no, but uh, little Hebrew children, Abba, similar to ours, Dada, Mama. So it's very intimate, and that's what Jesus uh, taught us in, in referring to the Father and referencing Him and coming to Him. He's our Daddy. He's our Father. Let me read to you a couple of uh, texts. Uh, they're part of your cross-references. They're Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You're not, you're not a slave. So you shouldn't be running around with a whole lot of fear is what he's saying. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. So this is the work of the Spirit in our heart is to bear witness, to, to make this more real to us, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you hear anything in this and, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should hear the Holy Spirit just reaffirming that embracing you with the love of the Father, that you would see His love for you. And First uh, John 3, 1, you guys know that. I, I, I quote it about every couple months here. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. I, I, I was part of our prayer this morning. How great is the Father's love, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Literally, the, the Greek understanding how great means this is out of this world. Do you have any idea the implications of you being a child of God? Why are you stressed out? Why are you worried? Why are you depressed? Don't you understand what you have in Him? That's what He's saying. It's like, oh my goodness. This is the craziest thing in the world. But see, we don't live in the reality of that. We, we kind of say that. We know it intellectually, but not existentially. It's not something that moves us and stirs us. So that's why we almost need it beat into us each and every week, don't we? And just so that it gets down deep into our hearts. So he's a father unlike you've ever known. So some of us have a problem with referring to God as father, and the reason why it's, it's so hard to get down deep in our hearts, the next, next point on your notes, earthly fathers shape our concept of our heavenly father. So based on the kind of upbringing you had, it has a great impact on how you uh, transfer that over to your, to your heavenly Father. And Nancy and I were, uh, were watching, we watched a different, couple different newscasts. One's extremely liberal and the other one's extremely, uh, the other side, conservative, I guess is that what you call it. But it just kind of gets a balance. But, but it was interesting, the one that was the more liberal uh, newscast was uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, it gave a report about the impact of dads. And they were going to the different schools where these school systems were actually inviting dads into the classroom to spend the day in the classroom. And this is what they found. It was interesting. 
that they would report this because it kind of goes contrary to the whole same-sex marriage uh, argument and all these other things. But it, but it said, uh, the impact of dads in the school classroom increased academic performance and decreased behavioral problems just by having the dad there present. So they were trying to get more dads in, into the school because it made a difference in the kids. And they didn't even have to be the dads of the kids. It was just a father figure in the school system. Here's your next point on your notes under this idea of who is God. Your concept, so how do I know that my concept is getting healthy? Your concept is healthy when you run to Him to be with Him rather than to use Him or to get from Him. And, and what we'll see with these, both these boys are they're, trying, they're using their dad. They're basically opting to, they want his stuff more than they want, want him. So, so let me ask you this, what comes to mind when you think of father? For some of you, it would be distant, detached, harsh, demanding, hard to please. And yet Jesus is defining the heavenly father here in this story as close, connected, merciful, loving, generous. He's really giving us a balance between uh, the Father's greatness but His goodness, His majesty but His meekness. He's powerful but He's very personal and loving. And it's important to maintain that balance because it both humbles us and gives us confidence at the same time. It gives a balance to our lives. But this is what you need to know. Everybody look up here just for a minute. Then you can look back down at your notes. There has never, ever, ever been a parent on this planet earth that has ever loved their child more than your father in heaven loves you and wants your joy and seeks your highest good. The reality of that, when that goes from head to heart, it is revolutionary. And it changes the way that you respond to the circumstances and the people and the things of life. You don't, you don't respond with uh, defensiveness or attack or anything. You just, because there's, there's no fear in His perfect love. His perfect love chases away the fears in our lives. And the reason why we have fears is uh, you don't get rid of them by redoubling your efforts. You get rid of them by really focusing in on the Father heart of God and how much He loves you. It's the Father heart of God. If you... If you knew the Father heart of God, if you had any idea what He thinks about you, how He feels about you, what He wants to do in your life. I mean, this, this story is a beautiful picture of that. You wouldn't run from Him, you would run to Him, not to get from Him, but to just be with Him. And uh, so it kind of... I, you just look at your prayer life. Look at your Bible study time. If, you're not, if you don't find yourself running to that to, to spend time with Him, it's just you don't have the right perspective of God. My job is to try to help you to have that perspective, to stir up those appetites within you for God. Uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 11, great cross-reference there. Uh, it says, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Literally, he's saying, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? 
Some of you that are parents, when you were making breakfast for your kids, you didn't walk in with something up underneath this, you know, ooh, here it is, oh, there's a snake, bites the kid on the face, and then you laugh, ooh, you know, that would be wicked and evil, wouldn't it? He's saying, you don't do that, you wouldn't do that, you, you want the best for your kids. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, I love giving good gifts to my kids. I want my kids to do well. I want my grandkids to do well. And so when I think about that, then I think, wow, you, you love me that much? He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We talked about it last week. I'm still kind of blown away at our text from last weekend. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, 13. The context was that here's the nation of Israel. They've been chased out of the promised land. They're surrounded by really kind of hostility in Babylon. And, and they, all of their dreams and hopes have been kind of dashed to the ground. And, and they did that, and they deserved it because they had rejected God. And yet here's this Father God coming to them and saying, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. See, that's not just in the New Testament, that's in the Old Testament too. I mean, we we often try to make a distinction between, oh, that's the Old Testament God. Now, I, I believe in the New Testament God. Well, he's the same God. Same God, same heart, same father heart. And so, he defines for us who God is, and then we get the chance to look at sin. What is sin? It is more than breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in God's place. Oftentimes, when we think of sin, we think of behavioral things. Well, I shouldn't do this, and I shouldn't do that. But actually, it goes much deeper. I've already alluded to that. It's actually taking God's place. We're going to talk more about it next week, the sin under the sin. We're going to talk about idolatry, and so we'll we'll look at what is it that drives that. And typically, what drives the sin that we do, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And the reason why we're not satisfied with God is because of unbelief. We don't believe that He will meet our deepest longings and needs. And in pride, we think we can discover it on our own. And in idolatry, we begin to give our heart to anything more than God. We begin to love other things more than God. And uh, it's one of the reasons why, you've heard me say this now probably for a few weeks, is that worry and bitterness are manifestations of this idolatry. Worry, if I worry, it's because I'm afraid that he's not going to get it right. I'm not trusting the Father heart of God. And bitterness is that I believe that he didn't get it right. He really fouled things up as I look back in the past. I'm really bitter. And so it is more than breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in God's place. But, but there are two ways to put yourself in God's place, two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. There's two ways of, of, of finding your happiness, relating to God, dealing with life's problems. And you've got the younger brother who is breaking all the rules. It's self-discovery. And then you've got the elder brother who's keeping all the rules. It's called moral conformity. And both of the boys are really guilty of what the, how many are familiar with, typically this story has been called the prodigal son, but it's actually the prodigal sons because both of them are prodigal. But the word prodigal actually means reckless, extravagant, having spent everything, but it would actually represent the father. In fact, that's why I like the book and much of this teaching is, is taken from this book. It's a great book by uh, Tim Keller. It's called The Prodigal God, Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. 
Listen to what he says here. I'll just read a quick excerpt here. He says, the gospel of Jesus is not, is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches, so it's breaking all the rules and keeping all the rules. It's distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, everyone is called to recognize this and change. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world in two. The good people, like us, are in and the bad people who are the real problem with the world are out. And then the younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing, saying, no, the open-minded and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted and narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world are out. Sounds like the, the argument between the blue states and the red states, doesn't it? And if you really think about that, and yet Jesus is saying, no, the humble are in and the proud are out, because both of those are manifestations of pride, unbelief, pride, and idolatry. And, and uh, here's what it is, next point on your notes, it is believing that ultimate satisfaction is found in the Father's wealth rather than in His love. So that's, that's kind of the root of this. They're both using the Father, and they're wanting to get from the Father rather than to be with the Father. Let me give you a couple more uh, cross-references here. Best commentary for Scripture is Scripture in uh, 1 Timothy 4.4. For everything created by God is good. So everything created by God. So I just got a swig of some uh, nice coffee, iced coffee drink, and the Bible says that's good. That's good. It's good. And uh, some of you will watch today the Cardinals uh, beat, beat the Eagles. Is that who they're playing? Okay. And so uh, somebody yelled out their favorite team there, didn't they? But uh, so that's all good. Those are good. Some, some of you will go home today and uh, maybe you'll go out to your favorite restaurant this afternoon or whatever or this morning, go out for brunch. This is an early crowd, so you can go out for brunch. The Bible says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. In other words, it's saying, keep it in perspective. So if I, if I'm, I get more excited at a Cardinals game or the winning of Cardinals, that's what I was trying to get across last week. I'm not sure you guys got that point. But if you get more excited over the Cardinals or your bank account or anything more than God, then there's, there's, there's probably a problem with that. Certainly there is a problem with that. It's that's, that's idolatry. That, that we all are worshipers. We're all worshiping something. And what your sense of security, your identity, whatever, is found in that thing that you most rejoice in. Rejoicing is the consummation of, of the enjoyment we find in something. And when, we, when something dominates our thoughts, stirs our deepest emotions, and kind of moves us to action, and we effortlessly give our money and time to those things, just evidence of what's most important to us. That's all that when we begin to understand sin, that's what's happening. And what we do, Romans 1.25, is that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever 
Amen. And that's uh, Romans 1.25. So it is believing that ultimate satisfaction is found in the Father's wealth rather than in His love. Let me give you a couple characteristics and we'll, we'll finish up the rest of this of the younger brother. So as I thought about what are, what's some characteristics of this younger brother before he came to his senses, it would be in, he's insubordinate to authority. He just like flips dad off. Kind of, I'm going to do my own thing. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. And by the way, you can be a Christian and have some of that. I'm not going to be committed to a church anywhere. I don't need to go to church. I'm not going to have, have a pastor tell me what to do. I can still be a Christian and do my own thing. Well, that's part of that younger brother mindset. Another characteristic was that you believe that happiness is found in girls, gold, and glory, or uh, pleasure, possessions, positions. You, you think that it's out there somewhere. If I could just have the money, land the job, whatever. We all kind of believe that because we're bombarded with all the advertisements. It's the, it's the best life. It's the great life. It's the bigger house, the nicer car. The, it's not found there. That's, that, that's the younger brother mindset. Uh, it's also, it's a, a younger brothers also live secular lives in that secular means now-ism. It's now, living for now. And did you notice this? That he spends all of his money and then the famine hits and then he doesn't have any equity. He has no money in the bank. See, that's, that's the mindset of a younger brother. Eh, just it doesn't matter. And then something breaks down. You don't have anything to, to respond to whatever it is that broke down. You, you don't think about tomorrow. It's all about now. That's our society. Those are just some of the characteristics of the younger brother. What are the characteristics of the elder brother? An attitude of superiority or despair. If you're not hitting the mark, you're either very superior. Hey, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. You bums. Show up when you want to. You don't even pick up the Bible. Well, no wonder you're having the problems you're having. You could be like me. It's like, who wants to be like you? You arrogant person. And so they're very superior, or it's either superiority or despair. If you have a works righteousness, in other words, your sense of well-being is based on, in fact, I put this down, I, I think I tweeted this yesterday or last night, it says there's a major difference between obeying God to achieve salvation, that's religion, and obeying God in gratitude for receiving salvation, that's the gospel. Major difference between the two. This guy is trying to earn. It's called paganism. I'm going to appease the gods so the gods will bless me. You're pagan. That's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. So superiority, fear-based, joyless compliance, bitterness when things don't go well because they feel entitled, God owes me, and also a lack of assurance of the Father's love. Both of these fundamentally, it's unbelief, pride, idolatry. Whether you break all the rules or keep all the rules. And by the way, some of us can go back and forth between the two. Sometimes if you watch people's lives, they'll go from breaking all the rules to I've got to get my life together to keeping all the rules to breaking all the rules, keeping all the rules. Some of us just try to keep all the rules. We kind of go from gospel, I'm resting in the reality that God accepts me and loves me because of what Jesus did, not based on what I do. But then I, we find ourselves falling back into, oh, I've got to do, do, do. I've got to do all these things. Oh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I don't feel good about myself. Wait, 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 wait. It's not based on what you do. The doing comes out of what has been done for you on the cross. And so we tend to mix those up. So who is God? What is sin? Here's the next one. What is salvation? It begins with the initiating love of the Father. 
I gave you a bunch of verses there you can look up. Basically, it just says no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God unless the Father's drawing him. We love him because he first loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrates his love for us. <clears throat> this is what's amazing. The Father goes out to both sons in order to bring them in. Did you notice that in the story? The Father goes out to both sons. With the younger brother, the father runs out to him and smothers him with kisses before he repents. So this is what we can learn, is that the repentance doesn't trigger the kiss, but the kiss triggers the repentance. See, we get that all confused. Okay, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to come to church try to start doing right things. No, 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 no. Encounter the father heart of God. And when you have his kiss upon you, man, you will change. You will change. It will change your life. I've often thought about if we were to have this story where the father didn't happen to see, maybe the father went in to go to the bathroom or something and didn't see the son coming, and the elder son saw him coming and met him about halfway into the house and beat the living daylights out of him. You piece of, you get out of here. You wrecked our home. You took a third of our wealth. It's one of the reasons why younger brothers don't come to church is because too many of our churches are filled with elder brothers. I'm, 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 I'm glad the Desert Breeze meets and reaches both younger brothers and elder brothers. We tend to run off elder brothers sometimes because they don't like, because I wear shorts and our music is too loud and, you know, they got to have all the criteria just right. And that's typically an elder brother mindset. Oh, you guys are so disrespectful. You know, it's just like, what does that mean? I'm not sure what you mean. I, we, love, we love the Father. We want you to see the Father's heart. I certainly don't want anything that I do to interfere with that, but you're kind of getting hung up on form rather than substance. Yeah, could you be worshiping God with your lips, but your heart be far from Him? That's the elder brother. See, that's... that's so the Father goes out to the younger brother. He also goes out to the elder brother. The father goes to him and pleads with him to come in, showing us that it's come into what? To the party. He's missing the party. He's been sitting in church his whole life, and his heart isn't getting any bigger for God or for others. He's just ticked off. He's just mad. He's angry. And uh, so it's, it's really amazing. He's showing us it's possible to leave the father without ever leaving the farm. This, this occurred to me this last week. I think I saw it on a tweet or something that it said, Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. And Judas went out and hung himself. He betrayed Jesus and hung himself. You could sit in church your whole life and be an elder brother. I don't want to be that. Man, I want to encounter the Father's heart of love. So it begins with initiating love of the Father. Let me ask you this. Do you see his love in this picture? Is your heart being warmed? Are you being drawn in to see that more than ever before? Because that, my friends, is what will heal you ultimately. It's his, it's his heart for you. That will set you free of all the things that, that, that rob you, that harass you, that hammer you, that fear and the anxiety and all of that. Here's the next one. You must repent not only of breaking the rules, but why you would ever keep the rules. 
huh? There's an 18th century great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book. It was called The, the Nature of True Virtue. And he made this distinction between this. There's a major difference between morally restrained will versus supernaturally transformed heart. And you hear us talk about it a lot around here. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? Because you've probably heard me say it a few times. For those of you that haven't heard me say this, let me repeat it because I think it's important. So there's a morally restrained will. You can be moral and kind and loving out of extrinsic motivation, out of fear and pride. Fear? What will people think? I better do what is, what's right. Or, or pride? You don't want to be like all those other dishonest people. You want to be honest. We tend to use that form of motivation with our children, and early on you, you, you actually should. You have to kind of force extrinsic motivation and more out of fear and pride, but at some point in their life, you've got to transfer them from this extrinsic form of motivation to intrinsic motivation where it's not a morally restrained will because mom and dad told you so, but it's a supernaturally transformed heart because their hearts are smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. And they don't do it because someone's kind of holding a gun to their head, but they do it because they love Jesus and they want to put Jesus on display and they do it because they want to be able to minister to others the grace and the goodness that they've experienced. See, that's the distinction. Why do you do what you do? Why do you, why do you come to church? It, it better be because your heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That's gospel. That's Christianity. And so if, if your heart isn't there, then my prayer for you is that, man, that you would encounter the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Because what happens is that when we, when we try to get people, by the way, I'm not just hammering the churches in America today, but a lot of churches preach moral restrained will. That's one of the reasons why they take offerings is because you put that offering plate in front of people, they feel kind of obligated because everybody's looking at me, so I better do something here. That's what I love about Desert Breeze because we don't do that. Because we want people to give for the right reason. And it's out of a heart that's smitten by the beauty of Christ. And, uh, and so this moral restrained will, actually when you restrain, when you take someone from being dishonest to being honest, out of a moral restrained will, you haven't changed what is fundamentally wrong with all of us, and that's self-centeredness. The fundamental evil within the human heart is self-centeredness. All you're doing is, is restraining the heart and harnessing the self-centeredness, because what makes people dishonest, fear and pride, self-centeredness, can also make people honest, fear and pride, self-centeredness. You guys tracking with me? So you haven't got to the root issue. Because when someone is honest, they're being honest for their sake, not for the sake of God or for the other people. So that's why it's critical that when, you're, when you are captivated by what Jesus has done for you on the cross, man, your good behavior is a product of a heart that is surrendered completely to God because you are so filled up. You party with God every day. It's a party. It's celebration. It's joy. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Woohoo! Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. It's like, oh my goodness. And so you're, you're good because you're saying, oh, you gotta see this God. You gotta see my dad. You gotta see the Father. You gotta come and join us on the farm. Man, it is heaven on earth. See, that's, that's what happens. Okay. Here's the last. Woohoo. I got all excited there. 
your heart must be smitten by what it cost the Father to bring you home. Your heart must be smitten by what it cost the Father to bring you home. Man. And there's a hint of what it cost here in verse 31. When the Father says to the elder brother, all that is mine is yours, it's, it's literally true. After the father had split the inheritance, one-third to the younger brother and two-thirds to the elder brother, every robe, every ring, every fattened calf now belonged to the elder brother. And it would be at his expense to bring the younger brother home. Now, what's interesting about this parable is that it is the third in rapid-fire succession, as I stated at the beginning of this message, of Jesus showing us the Father heart of God. In all three stories, if you were to go back and read the stories, something is lost. In fact, the first story is the lost, lost sheep. And the second story is the lost coin. And then we've got the lost son. So in each of the stories, something is lost, something is found, and there's unbelievable festive uh, celebration at that which has been lost, has been found. And, uh, and that's true, but there's one difference in the, from the third parable to the first two is that uh, the, the only major difference here is that, that this parable, uh, this third one, is that though in the first two someone goes out to find that which is lost, in the third one no one goes out to find the son. Why is that? Because I believe that Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees that this is what their job was to be. You're to find those that are lost. And they didn't give a rip about lost people. They criticized Jesus because he was hanging out with lost people only for them to show that they were more lost than the lost people. Isn't that interesting? And... uh, and what he was wanting them to not only see that, but he was, wanting, he was wanting our hearts to long for the true, for the true elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it, it would have been normal for, for in this culture for, the, for, for a true elder brother to say, hey, Dad, I see your heart's broken. I'm going to go out and see if I can bring the brother back home. But this brother didn't. He didn't give a rip about this elder brother. But our true elder brother came out to do what? In fact, it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It says in Luke, Luke 19, 10, that the son of man came to seek and to save. I'm gonna invite the guys up. I think they're somewhere around here. We're gonna sing some songs and drive this deeper into our heart. And uh, that on the cross... Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought in to God's family freely by grace. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be robbed, so that we could be robed, I'm sorry, that we could be robed in the Father's righteousness, that He would embrace us. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother who paid our debt on the cross in our place. And so here's my final point. We're going to pray. We're going to sing these songs. 
to drive this truth deeper into our hearts to the degree our hearts are smitten by the wonder of the work of our true elder brother, Jesus Christ, is to the degree we will no longer be younger brothers or elder brothers. That's the bottom line. Would you stand with us as we sing these songs? So God, this morning, as we have encountered your amazing love, the Father heart of God, Lord, through these songs, reveal yourself to us that much more. Chase away the fears. May we want you more than anything, not to get from you, but just to be with you. We're thankful that you are here this morning and that we can encounter you, we can know you. There's nothing that that brings greater, more enduring joy than to know you, to spend time with you, to experience your warm embrace. God, smother us with your kisses this morning through worship, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.